There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with Greg and Colin. Greg, here we are again. Yeah, amazing. Amazing. This is episode, I don't know, 100 and some odd. I've lost count a little bit, but that's okay. As a reminder, there's no such thing as a free lunch except perhaps asset allocation, diversification, and Greg, this podcast. Free. It's free to everybody. Please go in and download, subscribe, whatever you need to do. But today we're going to talk about a specific asset class that many investors are invested in. And one that also gets a lot of attention these days because, Greg, I don't know if you've noticed, but the stock market's been down a little bit. Is it? Yeah, a little bit. I hadn't noticed. And the bond market's been down a little bit? A little. A little bit, yeah. Like, I think it's the worst start to the U.S. stock market in 52 years. That's right. Yeah. So as a result, investors are looking at other asset classes, other areas to invest in. And one of those areas is real estate. And we've got somebody joining us today that is going to talk about specifically things like multifamily residential farmland and self-storage. And so to discuss this, we're pleased to have Jason Jogia join us from Avenue Living Asset Management. Mr. Jogia serves as the Chief Investment Officer of Avenue Living, and as well as Chief Executive Officer of their Opportunity Trust. He has over 15 years of experience in real estate capital markets, has originated over $10 billion. That's with a B, Greg. It's a big number. $10 billion in real estate loans. $1 $1 billion in equity. He's had extensive experience in real estate investment analysis and capital structure on various real estate asset classes. And he also serves in his part-time, just for fun, I guess, as an instructor at the University of Calgary. Because why not? You must have a lot of free time, Jason. Tons. Welcome to the show, by the way. Good <laughs> to have you. you here. Thank you. Thank you. So Jason, as we always get started on these podcasts, the first question really is, you know, tell us your story. How did you get to where you are today? Yeah. I mean, thanks for having me guys. I was born and raised in Calgary, just grew up here and spent my time academically at the University of Calgary, did a little stint abroad and went and did a master's degree in Italy and came back and did more academia at University of Calgary and professionally started to get into real estate because I was interested in it. I mean, I think, you know, if I think of when my career started, it was in that 04, 05. If you went into any coffee shop, everybody was talking about real estate. And I thought, well, maybe I need to think of doing something in real estate. So I ended up in real estate banking. And I spent about a dozen years in that industry, originating debt for a lot of real estate developers, investors, publicly traded companies, private companies, and really got a fundamental understanding of what made real estate investments tick and became very passionate about it. And part of that journey was to meet some really great clients, one of which was Avenue Living, who started to become a client of mine since I think it was about 09-10. And I got to know the founder and the co-founders at that time very, very well. Anthony Drewfrey became just a great confidant friend. And we spent a lot of time together as I originated and was the custodian, or they were the custodian of $100 million of the bank's money. So we got to know each (laughs) other very well. And slowly but surely, I worked with them over the course of five years while I was at Scotia and then moved my way into actually taking a position with them. And what started out as starting our Opportunities Trust, which was kind of a vehicle within their platform, 
grew into a broader role of chief investment officer for the overall group of companies, which which today stands just shy of $4 billion in assets, spans two countries, and I think we're now over 40 different cities. So we're, we're growing. We've been growing. Well, and obviously grown a lot since you joined, but what's the history of Avenue Living themselves? Yeah, so Avenue Living is a very interesting story. I mean, started in 2006, very, very humbly. A couple of co-founders who had a dream of parking some capital into multifamily and being a direct owner. And really at that time, when you looked in 06 between Calgary and Fort McMurray, it was the Alberta boom. So it was really tough to pick a position, especially if you were arguably a nobody. And as a result, they started to look a little further afield and ended up in a market, which we probably know in this room, Brooks, Alberta, 100 miles east of Calgary. Oh, wait, wait, Brooks? No, I was thinking Hannah. Nickelback's from Hannah. Oh, okay. Wait, not Brooks. Yeah, okay, Close. go on. Close. Yes, yeah. So they found an apartment complex there. It was actually 24 townhouses. And it was the early trappings of what became the tenants of our business. You know, on paper, those rents were probably about half the price that they were in Calgary at the time. The owner was basically the original owner who had owned that asset since since they built it circa 1970s. And the tenant profile was what we today call the workforce housing demographic. So that 15 to $50 an hour resident who is kind of that backbone of Canadian society, I'd like to call them. And really the guys went in and, and they bought the asset. Great yield on paper, made sense recognized very, very quickly that they had to manage the asset and recognized very, very quickly that there was low-hanging fruit within it to, to add value, to accrete rents, and to create growth in the, in the equity stack and the cash flow. And that was the catalyst to what became this outside-in strategy where they started in 06, as I said, went from Brooks, moved to Lethbridge, went into Saskatchewan, and slowly but surely consolidated the secondary and tertiary markets in Alberta and Saskatchewan, stuck to non-oil correlated, non-single resource correlated markets. They were trying to look at diversification and then slowly but surely started to infill over the course of, of that time on the inside, which I would say the primary markets. So markets like Calgary, Edmonton, Saskatoon, and Regina. And today I would say that we're now north of, or just maybe north of 15,000 units total in our portfolio. We're in 22 markets. 18 of those are in Canada, four are in the U.S., and the business hasn't changed. We're an operator of multifamily real estate. We have our own property management. It's vertically integrated. We have our own asset management function, and we buy fundamentals. We buy real estate that has a certain profile or target demographic, a certain vintage of real estate, a certain density of real estate, and we have a certain execution plan from an operating and capital standpoint that has allowed us to advance and grow equity, both of the founders, and then as we grew, investors as well. So Avenue isn't really a, a developer involved in new construction. It's, it's mainly you're buying existing buildings. Yeah. yeah, we built a bit of an art and a science around it. And how I mean is that, you know, when you look at the new constructions and you look at the rents required to sustain new construction, they're quite a bit ahead of where we are. So when we're buying existing, typically we can buy from 50 to 70% the price of replacement cost. And as a result, our rents can be arguably half the price. And so when you're at half the price with half the replacement cost, you can add CapEx to gentrify the asset while maintaining a level of affordability for your resident. And then your addressable market's much wider. And that's what's been able to sustain our business through, I mean, we're in Alberta here, the economic downturn, commodity crisis, COVID, and then whatever we want to call this period. We haven't, I don't think we've named it yet, but 
Well, I was going to say the the company sort of started at a bit of a tenuous time in the real estate business. I mean, 2006, I mean, maybe not to the same extent the U.S., but there was a bit of a downturn here in that 08-09 period. Well, there was definitely a downturn in real estate in 2007, because I know that because, you know, people always say, well, you never lose money in real estate, Jason. But I lost money in real estate in 2007, thought I was smarter than the market, built a couple houses and my timing sucked. So I'm sure that kind of comes into play in, in your in your world on a day-to-day basis, right? Like, you know, how does timing come into Avenue? Yeah, it's a great it's a great question. I mean, look, we've been at it now 16 years, 16 plus years, and we've bought through the dips, we've bought through the booms, we've looked at assets perpetually through these cycles, and really what it boils down to is we have to be an operator. You know, when we look at our business and what makes the success of our business, it's not capital allocation and just taking a position for the sake of taking a position in real estate. It's now that you own it, what can you do with it? And for us to be able to weather these protracted storms, because I mean, we haven't been in a bull market in Alberta in north of eight years. It comes down to what can you do for the residents to be able to earn an extra dollar from them and be a responsible landlord and be able to then flow that dollar down to the bottom line and create profitability. And that's what's allowed us to post strong returns since the inception of the organization, since we've been a product in the alternative market in the face of what I would consider low growth conditions. We don't sell. We generally don't sell. We're not in the merchant business. We're not buying to flip. We're just buying to hold cash flow and build cash flow. So, you know, you've, you've talked about the, all of the investments you've made in Alberta and Saskatchewan. And when most people think real estate these days, of course, they hear all the news about what's going on in Toronto and Vancouver. So why the focus on the prairies? And have you looked at investments outside of the prairies, like in the larger markets? Yeah, I think, I think in our multifamily business, we've really focused in on the prairies and we're in the U.S. prairies as well. I would call them the U.S. prairies or the U.S. heartland, if I can call it that, places like Kansas and Coast Springs. Wait, Coast Springs? Colorado Springs. Oh, okay, yeah, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. You're using your lingo on yeah. our show. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> my bad. So, no, I mean, look, I, I think when it comes down to as we're in environments that arguably are low growth and as a result don't have that ex- rational exuberance that, that the Torontos and the Vancouver's or the New York's or the LA's have for that matter. And as a result, we can take a position and incubate value and create that value through operations versus just letting the market advance on us. So, you know, it's being being in that adage of, did you buy at the right time and did the market advance? Well, arguably we don't really care. Did we buy the right asset with the right fundamentals and then advance the asset in spite of the market conditions? And that's what the prairies has been for us. That's what the U.S. prairie has been for us. It's It's been this canvas for us to then articulate our value add capability and not necessarily rely on riding those highs. So when we looked at, you know, and we've looked, we've looked at the interior of BC, we've looked at Vancouver proper, we've looked at Toronto and the GTA. We just, we can't make heads or tails of it. You don't necessarily get rewarded of being a great operator there when the market is far outstripping growth, but that's not necessarily a sustainable competitive advantage. We can't rely on double digit growth every year perpetually as we're seeing right now. And as those boom markets start to become the other way, Real operators will have an opportunity and those who are just capital allocating will will face it and we're not exposed to that. So it's kind of good. Greg, so in our world, that would be value stocks versus growth stocks, right? So Jason, you're talking about buying value versus buying high growth and expecting it to grow forever. It's sort of like the exact opposite. Like a lot of people have a real love-hate relationship. I know myself, I do. 
there's a comedian that said, you know, everybody knows a building they could have bought, you know, 30 years ago for $30,000 and be worth millions today. But I think what you're hitting on, though, is, is your approach seems to be a little bit more, as you say, focused on it's not so much about it doesn't have to grow. It will grow as the rents grow, but you're really focusing on on cash flows, long-term cash flows. So you're looking at income streams far into the future. Yeah. And I mean, if we if we look and fundamentally distill this down, what pays our bills? It's the customer. Customer is the resident. Sure. They write a contract with us. It's a 12-month contract. It's a contract where it's somewhere around twelve dollars to $15,000 a year. And at the end of the day, that's a percentage of their income that they're giving to Avenue Living. Mm-hmm. And as a result, what we're really focused in on is what are we providing them as a differentiator in the market for an asset that we drive by every day and don't even do a second look at. So that's stuff like 24-7 call center. That's stuff like ensuring your work orders are done on time. That's like being available or being able to actually provide you with flexible payment terms versus having to be paying on the first of the month, every month, et cetera. And through that value proposition, we're able to advance those rents, even in spite of the fact that the overall market may not be advancing or it may not be advancing at the same pace. And that's really that value, that value engineering that we do within our business, which has been very, very strong for us. I think you're missing an opportunity here though, Jason. I think you should like securitize those rent payments, create a pool, call it triple A, maybe create a synthetic pool of that pool, sell it to investment banks and create a second synthetic pool. Wait, that's the global credit crisis. Sorry, I just yeah. Described. <laughs> yeah. I think you just had a flashback. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things uh, we had heard that you're the first REIT to partner with the Canadian Investment Bank for sustainability-focused retrofits. So uh, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we are the second largest building owner in Canada. And by volume, we're definitely not the largest unit owner, but our structures are lower density. And what we've recognized is if you look at the vintage of our buildings, 60s, 70s, 80s, even 90s, we've got some stuff in the thousands as well, or 2000s, they have a large footprint. And if we look at, you know, the fact that when they were built, sustainability wasn't in vogue. It wasn't even a thing. <laughs> well, you had le- lead paint yeah. back then. Asbestos, yeah. lead paint, all of that fun stuff. So we've been working on our buildings for years and years and years. And we've always been looking at ways to do it better, to consume less, to save energy, to save water from that perspective or, or other, other things. And at the end of the day, what dawned on us is we have more roof line than, than most of our peers. So when we have that much roof line, why couldn't we put solar on top of our buildings? Why couldn't we, you know, change the way we heat and cool these buildings? And as a result, we piloted a program with the Canadian Infrastructure Bank. It's been two years in the making. And it's the idea that we want to reduce GHG emission in our buildings by up to 50% by doing these deep retrofits, which includes new cladding, new windows, new roof, adding solar, adding high efficiency furnaces, changing out some of the appliances and some of the plumbing, et cetera. And by doing that, can we save enough money to pay for itself over a period of time? And we've actually, we've kind of hit that point where we've in our pilot basically taken every build form that we have and now have identified 6,000 of our 15,000 units that will go into the deep energy retro program over the next three to four years. What is the payout on like, what kind of time frame are we talking? Because that seems like a big investment. It's a pretty big investment. The terms of the infrastructure bank is a 20-year life cycle. And we believe our payback is somewhere between 12 to 15 years. And, you know, if you transcend that beyond the asset useful life, with all the stuff that we're doing to it, we accelerate some of those long-term 
CapEx pieces that we need and then refresh our useful life to 40, 50 plus years. So it's in the grand scheme of things, it's a very good investment. Now you mentioned Kansas and Cove Springs, Colorado Springs. So you also mentioned obviously the U.S. is a target market. Can you talk a little bit about what your plans on expansion to the U.S. might be? Absolutely. So we've identified a bunch of geographies within the U.S. that share very similar characteristics to the prairies. So not necessarily high growth metropolitan area, metropolis areas, but more growth driven just by slow and steady, not negative migration, just positive migration, diversified economic bases. I mean, let's take let's take Colorado Springs as an example. I mean, tourism is an industry there. You've got military there. You've got higher level of education in the U.S. And the U.S. does education different than Canada. I mean, one of their universities will have 70 to 100,000 students on it. And at the end of the day, it's, it's very diversified and within a one-hour commute to Denver or an hour and 20 minutes, depends on how you drive and what you drive. And so that's been a very, very strong market because it's no different than, you know, a larger version of Lethbridge, if I can say it that way. And Lethbridge has been a great market for us. We're basically full in Lethbridge today. So basically, we've identified these markets, we've gone in, we've looked for assets that have the same characteristics, i.e. typically vintage mom and pop type of ownership, they're looking to estate plan, they're looking to get out of the asset because the kids don't want to run it anymore, they want to check, we're finding those opportunities, then we're looking at their rents relative to where the market is, have they actually kept up with the trends and traditions of what current modern workforce housing is, most of the times no, so it becomes a value add opportunity. And then we're able to go in below replacement cost, advance those rents through CapEx and operating expenditure and create value for our business and play in the same. And, you know, we have more in common with Colorado Springs from the prairies than we do with Toronto or Vancouver. And that's been the natural evolution of our business. I'll tell you, I mean, I grew up in Saskatoon, one of your primary markets. Greg grew up in Regina, probably a tertiary market. (laughs) But um, I went to school in North Dakota for one whole year and lived in what they called off-campus housing, which was apartment blocks owned by the school that students lived in. So it seems to me like that's like the type of opportunity you're looking at is like, because, you know, it's just a bunch of students that are, it's full every year. It will always be full, right? Like that type of thing. Yeah. I mean, I think if you look at the characteristics of our resident profile, you'll have students You'll have both ends of the spectrum. You'll have students and seniors who have been lifers in the rental. I mean, they're renters by necessity and that's what they do. Fixed income folks on on both sides. But in the middle, you're going to have your everyday worker. You've got people who are working in the schools, the janitorial staff, the clerical staff, like people who need to rent, who want to be close to their employer, making sure that they're able to to live close and have quality living. And that's that's been the backbone, you know, the Tim Hortons worker, the, the Walmart worker. And when we look at the cycles of the economy, whether we're talking about the global pandemic, the great financial crisis, or even the commodity crisis, the stickiness of this profile of tenant has been very, very strong and defensible. Because arguably, as I mentioned, we rely on our customer for our cash flow to sustain our business. The resilience of our customer is very, very strong and defensible. They're not single industry correlated or there's no real big wave and and if they do lose their job or if they do get laid off they tend to be that semi-skilled worker that can pick up their bat and ball and go play another game pretty quickly and then they also have the benefits that allow them to continue to sustain their living well it seems like the affordability angle is certainly one that in many industries if you can maintain that advantage and still offer a high quality product at the best price. That seems like a great strategy. Now let's talk a little bit about, we did a podcast recently talking about the 60-40 portfolio where 60% of an investor's money is in 
stocks and 40% in bonds. And a lot of people talk about, well, that's dead because bonds, at least this year, have not have not done all that well. But sometimes the the alternatives seem riskier. And so, you know, when we're talking about your your product for your investment product, structured as a mutual fund trust, I believe, but available to accredited investors by offering memorandum, so not publicly traded. And so what are the risks and how were they mitigated for an investor in your funds? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think I think I'll start with maybe the characteristics of the the offering. So our investors are able to buy units of this mutual fund trust which beneficially invests into a limited partnership which owns the real estate. So it's essentially indirect ownership managed by our own in-house internal asset and property manager. And essentially, the returns are a composition of a fixed targeted distribution. So kind of bond-like, albeit tax-efficient because it's a return of capital. We can do that in real estate. And then some NAV appreciation, which kind of tracks the excess cash flow plus the profitability and the value of the underlying assets. And so, you know, we kind of share a little bit of this hybrid of equity and fixed income in terms of the composition of our returns just like any real estate does. If you own a rental property, it's basically the exact same thing. The difference is that you're not actually having to deal with management. And that can be a very, very big challenge. We've spent the better part of our existence building, and it's not done yet, it's always iterative, but building the better mousetrap to be a good manager, to then be able to allocate capital to new assets and then continue to create value. In terms of buying in a alternative or buying into a mutual fund trust, I mean, the risks tend to be liquidity, which is, you know, arguably the risk of any alternative. You know, we have ability to redeem. We do redeem. We've never had to gate our fund. Um, There's people in the market that have, but, you know, sometimes I argue that, you know, a redemption feature is built in as a protective measure for the investor to ensure that they can take their money out if they need to with some notice. But on the flip side, if you look at the liquid markets and having a position in real estate today, how is that liquidity working for you when you've got the ebbs and flows in the bowl? within the pricing itself. So that's, you know, kind of protects the investor from themselves. It allows them to have a longer duration of money against longer duration assets, if I can say it that way. In terms of transparency, I mean, we govern ourselves like a publicly traded company. We've got independence within it. We do things like third-party appraisals. We have EY as our auditor, who does a lot of the pubco real estate companies. So we, we kind of treat ourselves like we are a public company. I think the difference is, is that we don't necessarily publish quarterly earnings because we don't have to, and it's a lot of time to do that. And I think the other part is that, yeah, we've got independent trustees from a governance standpoint, but with a lot of the committees that a pubco would have. So comparable from a governance standpoint, structure, composition of returns a little bit different than a traditional equity or, or, or bond piece. And then redemptions would be that, that other risk there. Are there any plans to go public or is there a benefit of being private and, and, you know, continuing to be private versus going public? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think our ability to continue to access capital on an accretive basis for both the business and the investor is profound within the private markets and our ability to identify opportunities to continue to consolidate is still there. So if I can say that the day we decide that it's time to go public, either two things are happening that the, the, the publicly traded values have advanced so far that the portfolio premium makes complete sense to do it or we're done growing. And I could say that neither of those two things are currently happening right now. So we're, we're kind of sticking to what we're doing in our knitting right now. I like that. Sticking to doing what we're doing in our knitting. Sticking to the knitting. There's one. Yeah. What's another one you got for us, Greg? What's one of these old sayings that you yeah, like to say? I, I, I can't think on the spot like this. I'll have, to, I'll have to work on this and we'll come back to it. I'm really disappointed right I know, now. I know. Okay. Sorry about that. 
You know, you touched on something, you know, a lot of people, as I say, there's a bit of a love-hate thing with real estate. You know, some people, it's like, well, you know, you've always got a place. It's a piece of land. You know, they can't take it away from you and that kind of thing. And a lot of people do, you know, buy rental properties with the hope of, you know, they'll make good money and then sell out later at a, at a profit. But, but how, do, how do we talk to those people? And I think both the public and the private, you know, real estate avenues are better options for many people. So how do we talk to those people? Yeah, look, I mean, here's the challenge. You know, frankly, property management is the driver of your success in owning real estate. And I would tell you that depending on on your cap, a average investor, an accredited investor, is really not going to have access to best-in-class management, at least in the Canadian context, because they have no bargaining power or buying power. And so as a result, you either do it yourself which it's a 24-7 business. It really is. At scale, I mean, you know, I have 30,000 people that live with us. And some days it's the Jerry Springer show, literally. Yeah. But, like, <laughs> it's, 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 but we have a system for that. You must have some cool video clips though. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes, videos and stories and legendary stories. Absolutely. But, you know, I mean, the direct ownership, while it provides the composition of return, you know, long-term cash flow, capital appreciation, just like we do, comes with its stress and you know sometimes things are are being done and they they work for a while but the minute you hit that one bad tenant or you have that one you know issue it really starts to turn upside down what was the benefit of having this and as a result you know people who want allocation people who want that levered return i mean look we're posting you know i think the last three years we've been posting trailing returns in the double digits on our product even through the pandemic and and commodity crisis we've seen that indirect ownership can simulate really strong returns. You leave a little bit on the table, but you take a lot of peace of mind. Well, to give you my personal example, when I first moved to Calgary, I had a, a nice little bungalow in El Boya with a completely separate suite in the basement, which I rented out. And one day when I walked into the house and it felt like the Amazon rainforest, I thought something might be going on. And of course, the tenant was growing weed in my basement. <laughs> This before it was legal, right? Under, under my nose. Oh. And uh, so I, that, that was the only experience I needed to realize I did not want to be a property manager. So, no, but wait, Greg, you were a property manager. When you moved to Calgary, you, were, you worked in real estate. I was, yeah. 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 How'd that work it out wasn't for you? My, it wasn't my favorite part of the business either. So, uh, <laughs> so kudos to anyone that can excel at property management and, and handle 30,000 units. Let's just do one more question and then move to the speed round. What do you think? Sure. Okay, so so what's the big opportunity for Avenue going forward? More of the same. As a group of companies, we're continuing to grow in our multifamily space. It's been very, very creative to us. We just ventured in the last two years to storage. You know, overnight we've become the fifth largest storage operator in Canada and thirty second largest in North America. I mean, we we're, we're over three million square feet. We're in the U.S. there as well, and we're in the farmland business. We love real real estate assets that are very, very unsexy. I mean, for lack of a better way to describe them. If you drive by them and you don't notice them, that's the kind of stuff we like. So is it there's less competition in those areas? Yeah, I think I think what we're seeing is there's this big generational wealth transference that we're all aware of. It's probably once in a generational thing right now that it's more exasperated than ever. People are moving out of hard assets and moving more into financial securities, be it private or public. And we're being able to be on the, the receiving end, a lot of those dispositions at values that are really good for the family that's disposing of it because they've taken it to a certain place where that value has been created, but they're leaving room on the table for us to go in and create value. And there's probably not a huge market for 
like competition for you. Like if you go to, uh, I don't know, Nanton and there's an apartment building for sale, like there's only so many people that want to own an apartment building in Nanton. Right. Yeah. And I mean, to be fair, we would not go to Nanton. I mean, it'd be a little bit small for us. We'd be in Lethbridge for sure. We'd be in Medicine Hat for sure. We we would go into Red Deer for sure. You know, we try to stay in markets that have a trading populace of at least 30,000 people. So like Brooks, Alberta, where we started our business only has 13,000 people that live in it. But if you look at who they serve in and around the greater community, it's about 3x the population. But yeah, I mean, there's not a lot of people that want to go there. And then when we look at Calgary and we look at the medium to low density assets. So if you were to drive along 14th street South or you drove around elbow, you'll see a lot of our assets. We own a lot of that, but it's typically 22, 30, 40, 50 sweeter buildings. Even some complexes that are a little larger that doesn't have a lot of people chasing it because a lot of people are distracted with the shiny bright and new. They want the tower in downtown Calgary. And that's been our bit of a great opportunity and moment in time for us. Well, and you, as you say that we're recording in the nice shiny tower in downtown Calgary, right? Exactly. (laughs) But don't get us started on this building. (laughs) Craig, let's go to the speed round. Sounds good. Well, listen, first of all, thanks for uh, bringing us up to speed on on what you do at Avenue Living. And I think it's it's an asset of deep interest to many people. And it's, it is a separate and a diversifying asset class, you know, against stocks and bonds. So it's good to hear about all the opportunities there. Hey, so are we recommending that asset class? Of course we are. Yeah, why not? Yeah. Right? You should be invested in many different things. So everyone should own, own some real estate, you know, and possibly even in addition to their personal real estate hold, you know, that they live in. So absolutely. Well, listen. What do you do for fun when you're not working? Sounds like you're a busy guy, so there may not be a lot of time in there. Yeah, no, I'm uh, I'm doing my doctorate right now. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's, uh, is that's, that fun? It's fun. I love there it. You go. Like, are you talking about like a DBA? DBA. Yeah. 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 Where are you doing that? University of Calgary. Just can't get away from just there. Just can't hey? get away. I love yeah. it. Like, there's that's a whole somewhere. bunch of other schools out there. There is. <laughs> yeah. It's just convenient. <laughs> <laughs> that's cool. But yeah. how far in are you? I just finished my first year, and yeah, I mean, I got another year of lectures and then I'm challenging myself to a year of writing my dissertation. So, Oh, good for you. So a third, let's say it that way. <laughs> and what about outside of textbooks? What are you reading these days? Honestly, I've been reading a lot of true crime type stuff. Oh, honest. awesome. It's a little bit more of my interest. So I've been reading one recently about, I can't even remember the author's name, but it's about the Mr. Big operation and how that kind of came to be through the iteration of undercover work. So it's really interesting. Oh, that's neat. Fantastic. What about shows you're binging or watching if you do have any free time between your doctorate and yeah. your work? Yeah. Oh, look, I, I, I watch a ton of Disney. I've got three kids. Uh, oh, yeah. there you go. Six, yeah. five, and four. You oh, got, wow. Wait, you have three kids in single digits and you're doing your doctorate and you're allowed to do your doctorate? My wife is fantastic. Oh, and my and gosh. one more, one more on the way. So we're, wow. uh, we're congratulations. Uh, Holy, yeah, we're busy. So yeah, yeah. So we're uh, no. I mean, look, I, I've got great support. My wife is a rock star in terms of household management. So we're uh, we're in good shape. We're in very good shape. Well, and it sounds like you might need one of your apartment buildings for your kids once they uh, uh, once yeah. they get university. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah. Let's do one more, Greg. So, do you like to travel? I love to travel. So, what's been one of your most memorable? places or trips you've taken i just got back from disneyland yesterday well that's that's took, memorable i took my i took my seven year well six-year-old turning seven next week on a little father-son trip right that's on what he asked for and uh, wow we did the gauntlet and we were walking twenty thousand steps a day and enjoying the audience but no i i mean domestically i love i love going to california and internationally i i lived in italy for a year so i'm big yeah. and partial to uh, to europe and uh, in that area that would have been a great experience oh it's fantastic yeah what disneyland or italy 
Well, Italy. Yeah, I think I prefer Italy. I've been to Disneyland too. All right. Well, that's good. Thanks. Thanks again, Jason. That was a lot of fun. Appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you, John. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. And Greg, I guess, I guess that's it for today. Hey, we'll see you next time. Yeah. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the free lunch podcast hosted by the CM group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast, to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2022.